0: beginning with Nero in about 54 AD, for the next 250 years or so, the early church faced roughly 10 waves of persecution from the governing authorities in the Roman Empire. Polycarp, the bishop of Smyrna, was likely born during the lifetime of the apostles. It's possible that he had received instruction from the apostle John and perhaps even the apostle Paul, but his ministry was brought to an end somewhere around 155 A.D. He was a leader in the post-apostolic church, writing to the same church in Philippi that the Apostle Paul wrote to, but it is his death that is seared into the minds of the Christian church. He died a martyr's death, and his students recorded his faithfulness to Christ to the very end. He was a wanted man in the Roman Empire, he was even encouraged to go into hiding because the governing authorities were after him. And that was a, a very common thing in that day and age. It was not considered cowardice because the church wanted to preserve the teaching of the apostles as best they could. And since Polycarp had um, been potentially instructed by the apostle John and possibly Paul, his students encouraged him to preserve his life and to, to go into hiding. But he refused. See, he had a dream in which he saw his pillow catch fire. And he was persuaded that the Lord was calling him to die by fire. He was more than 80 years old at the time, and soon he was captured and brought before the governing authorities. And this is the account of his death by the hand of his students. But as Polycarp entered the stadium, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. When they brought him in, the pro inquired whether he were the man. And on confessing that he was, he tried to persuade him to deny. Have respect to your age and other things. The magistrate pressed him hard and said, Swear the oath and I will release you. Revile the Christ. You see, Polycarp was being persuaded to deny the faith, to revile the Lord Jesus Christ. And now listen to his reply. Polycarp said, Four score and six years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who has saved me? The proconsul said, I have wild beasts, and I will throw you to them unless you repent. Polycarp said, call for them. For the repentance from better to worse is a change not permitted to us, But it is a noble thing to change from untowardness to righteousness. Then he said to him again, I will cause you to be consumed by fire if you despise the wild beasts unless you repent. Polycarp replied, You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a while it is quenched, for thou art ignorant of the fire of the future judgment and eternal punishment which is reserved for the ungodly. Why do you delay? Do what you will. It's reported that Polycarp died by fire, without needing to be affixed to the stake. Polycarp served the Lord Jesus Christ for more than 80 years. He began well, and he ended well. There seems to be great difficulty in ending well, doesn't there? How often are we sobered by those who have had bright beginnings, but embarrassing endings? More personally, often do we seek to learn from those who have had bright beginnings, but embarrassing endings? How often do we stop and ask ourselves, how might I end well? How can I remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ to the very end? I want to invite you to reflect on that question as we consider the rule and reign of a king who was not like polycarp instead jehoash had a bright beginning but an embarrassing end if you haven't done so already let me invite you to turn in your bibles open your bibles to second kings chapter 11 if you're using one of the bibles provided you can find the passage on page 317 317. the book of first and second kings they were originally one book and they chronicle the history of god's people from solomon's kingdom through their division into two kingdoms and decline into exile. Last week in our study of 2 Kings chapter 10, we saw Jehu bring a bring an end to the house of Ahab and to the house of Baal in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there we saw that what began well ended poorly. Uh, we'll see something similar in 2 Kings chapter Chapters 11 and 12. But this time, the author of Kings, he directs our attention southward to the southern kingdom of Judah. He's switching back and forth in the book of Kings between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And here we're looking at the southern kingdom of Judah. In 2 Kings 11 and 12, we're reminded that God is committed to his promises to raise up a son of David to sit on the throne of his father. These two chapters encapsulate the entire rise and reign of a Davidic king in the kingdom of Judah. Here we learn that God's purposes and His promises cannot be thwarted by outright evil or lukewarm devotion. Jehoash is not the king that the people of God are finally waiting for. He begins well, but his faithfulness to Yahweh wanes as his life and his rule come to an end. We're going to study these these chapters in three sections which roughly parallel the beginning, middle, and end of Jehoash's reign. God's protection is on display in the beginning of Jehoash's life as he's providentially preserved from death. The middle of Jehoash's reign is mixed with hope and concern. Jehoash, he he repairs the temple, but there are troubling signs that he and the people of Judah have failed to internalize the true worship of the living God. Jehoash's end is filled with unfaithfulness. He abandons trust in God for trust in money. And his servants put him to death. Through it all, we see God's unfailing commitment to his promises. Perhaps we could put the message of 2 Kings chapters 11 and 12 like this. He remains faithful. That's the simple message of 2 Kings chapters 11 and 12. Our God remains faithful. Faithful to His promises and faithful to His people. Let's begin with our first point. Jehoash's bright beginning. That's the title of the first point. Jehoash's bright beginning. Follow along as I read just the first three verses of chapter 11. Now when Athaliah, the mother of Ahaziah, saw that her son was dead, she arose and destroyed all the royal family. But Jehoshaphat. The daughter of King Joram, sister of Ahaziah, took Joash, the son of Ahaziah, and stole him away from among the king's sons who were being put to death. And she put him and his nurse in a bedroom. Thus they hid him from Athaliah, so that he was not put to death. And he remained with her six years, hidden in the house of the Lord, while Athaliah reigned over the land. Jehoash's bright beginning which is described in all of chapter 11, has four distinct movements. First, there's the the preservation of the line of David in verses 1 to 3, the verses that we just read. Second, in verses 4 to 12, there's this proclamation of Jehoaz, the son of Ahaziah, as king. And you should know that the, the author moves back and forth between Joash and Jehoash, much like we might shorten the name Joseph to Joe, uh, so our author moves back and forth between the longer Jehoash and the shorter Joash. Uh, in, in the course of the sermon, I'm, I'm likely probably going to do the same. So there that is. Um, third, in the chapter, there's this punishment of Athaliah, which is found in verses 13 to 16. And fourth, there's a pledge between the king and the people found in verses 17 to 21. And to understand the connection of all four, we really have to understand this very first scene, verses 1 to 3. While we have left Jehu and his reign in Second Kings chapters 9 and 10, the reality is there's something of a reverberation occurring. Those chapters are reverberating into this one, into chapter 11. You'll recall that Jehu put Ahab, Jezebel, and Ahab's sons to death. The only problem is that one of Ahab's daughters, Athaliah, has married into the royal family of the southern kingdom of Judah. In Athaliah, we meet something of a southern Jezebel. Not a southern bell, a southern Jezebel. In Athaliah, we learn that, that she, though she may not have the blood of Jezebel, she has the bloodthirstiness of Jezebel. She's a daughter of Ahab. Uh, when her son was put to death by Jehu in the, the previous uh, two chapters, she rose up and put to death any potential heirs, in the kingdom because she wanted the throne to herself she wanted to rule in Jerusalem like Jezebel ruled in Samaria and this is where we especially need to read 2nd Kings chapter 11 in light of the larger canon of Scripture Athaliah's bloodthirsty rampage against royal heirs threatens God's promise of placing a son of David on the throne of his father you'll remember in 2nd Kings chapter 7 Uh, Verse 14, God promised that David would have a descendant who would sit on his throne and would reign forever as long as Athaliah is going out there and killing these boys. That promise is then threatened. Athaliah's slaughter of the heirs of David threatens to wipe out the messianic line, the line through which the Messiah will come. And this threat should set us as readers on edge. Athaliah is like a pharaoh. She kills off innocent children. And Jehoshaphat, you see her there, Jehoshaphat, the daughter of King Joram, the one who rescues the life of her nephew, is like a daughter of Pharaoh. She acts as one who preserves the life of a future king of Israel. And she does it right under Athaliah's nose. Just as Pharaoh's daughter brought Moses into the house of Pharaoh, so Jehosheba, the daughter of King Joram, brought her nephew into the temple of the Lord, right there in the capital city of Jerusalem. The true heir to the throne that Athaliah was seeking to steal was there under her nose all the time. And Jehoshaphat was able to bring Joash uh, in, into the temple because her husband Jehoiada was a priest in the temple. Feel the, the tension of the book of Kings at this point. The line of David is down to one son. It's down to one son. Is Joash going to be the king that the people of God have been waiting for? Rejoice in God's provision and protection of his promise. He puts a faithful man, Jehoiada, and a faithful woman, Jehosheba, in the right place at the right time to preserve a son from the right line. Brothers and sisters, learn this about God's providence. God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all of His creatures and all of their actions. At the moment that it seems like the lamp of David is about to be extinguished, God is working to keep that lamp lit through His ordinary but faithful servants, Jehoiada. And Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, Have you pondered what God might be doing in and through you as an ordinary but faithful servant of Jesus Christ? Have you considered that through your ordinary care for a brother or sister in Christ that God might be pleased to preserve them from going over the edge of despair? Have you considered that through your ordinary invitation to somebody to come to church That God might be pleased to use that to draw an unbelieving friend or family member to Christ in the days ahead and weeks ahead or months or or years down the road. Do not underestimate what God might be pleased to do through through just ordinary faithfulness. Given that David's line is down to one son, is it any wonder that in verses 4 to 8, Jehoiada, a faithful priest, calls in the Kerites to surround and defend Joash. That's what's going on there. It appears that the Karaites were a group of mercenaries employed by David in 2 Samuel chapter 8 and 15 and 20. These were these were men that you did not mess with. Uh, they were going to give their lives to defend this king. And he is the king. A- at least Jehoiada and the author are both identifying him as the king and calling him the king there in the text. You can see that especially in verses seven and eight. By the time we get to verse ten, We learn that the the emblems of royalty are beginning to surround Joash. Uh, The men who guard him are are handed the war implements of David. Then the crucial moment comes there in verse 12. Do you see it? Take a look at verse 12. Read verse 12. Then he brought out the king's son and put the crown on him and gave him the testimony. And they proclaimed him king and anointed him. And they clapped their hands and said, Long live the king. Joash, you see there, he's proclaimed as king. He's crowned as king in accordance with the Deuteronomic law. He's handed a copy of the testimony of the law, the law of God. He's instructed to take that copy and to write his own copy. From Deuteronomy 17, we learned that, that this is how it's supposed to unfold. But coronations, they often come with a lot of commotion. You'll recall that Solomon's coronation in 1 Kings chapter 1 came with a lot of commotion. In the Bible, when this commotion happens surrounding a coronation, often it's meant to be a signal to the pretender sitting on the throne that their rule has come to an end. Athaliah, in her ignorance, she bursts into the room there. In verse 14, you see what she shouts? She shouts, treason, treason. And this is rich, right? Because she's the one who sought to bring the Davidic line to an end. If anyone is guilty of treason, it's her. For her treason, she is punished. She's put to death there in verse 16, you'll see. And now let's read the conclusion of the chapter. Pick up reading in verse 17. And Jehoiada made a covenant between the Lord and the king and the people, that they should be the Lord's people, and also between the king and the people. Then all the people of the land went to the house of Baal and tore it down, his altars and his images, they broke in pieces, and they killed Matan, the priest of Baal, before the altars. And the priest posted watchmen over the house of the Lord. And he took the captains, the Kerites, the guards, and all the people of the land, and they brought the king down from the house of the Lord, marching through the gate of the guards to the king's house. And he took his seat on the throne of the king's. So all the people of the land rejoiced, and the city was quiet after Athaliah had been put to death with the sword. At the king's house. Jehoash was seven years old when he began to reign. Now, if there's ever a way to begin a reign on a solid foundation, then verse 17 outlines that way. Not only do the king and the people commit themselves to one another, but you see that they recommit themselves to God. In short, we're looking here at something of a covenant renewal ceremony. Jehoash and the people of God commit to be faithful to the covenant of God proclaimed by Moses on Sinai. And it's reiterated in the book of Deuteronomy. They even take action to express their commitment to the covenant. They put an end to the house of Baal. Is any of this starting to sound familiar? It's starting to sound like Jehu's reign, actually. Consider the parallels. Initially... Jehu and Jehoash were quietly proclaimed as king. It happens in verses 4 to 8 in our text. The trumpets announce their coronation. It happens in verse 14 of our text. Those currently reigning cry treason. Jezebel and then the southern Jezebel. Athaliah are both put to death. The Jezebels are put to death. And finally, Baal's house is destroyed. You see that in verse 18 of our text. There's just... There's just one lingering concern. And that is, is that Jehu's reign didn't end well. It turns out that his devotion to God was only half-hearted. Now, we're going to work our way through chapter 12 to get a read on Jehoash's heart. But for now, we need to take in the powerful providence of God in this chapter, In chapter 11. God is more committed to bringing his king than anyone else. He will not let his promises fail. It is not in his nature to fail. It is impossible for him to fail. He is not like us. We fail all the time, but he never fails. He can never fail. Indeed, he did not fail to bring his Messiah. Stand in awe that God has been so intricately involved in the preservation of his promise from Genesis chapter 3 to 2 Kings chapter 11 that He has superintended and governed every detail of history so that our hope of salvation could never be in jeopardy. Brothers and sisters, every wave that rocks your boat is under the rule of the one who says, Peace, be still. You can trust in Him in your storm. He preserved His Messiah, and He can preserve you. We also need to draw some encouragement there from verse 20. There we're told that all the people of the land rejoiced. The people rejoiced that Jehoash was king. Beloved rejoice that the Lord Jesus is king. Like Pharaoh and like Athaliah, the life of our newborn King was preserved from the likes of Herod. Herod sought to kill Christ our King. But Jesus' life was rescued, hidden, and preserved. And at the right time, he ascended to his throne at the right hand of the Father, where he now rules and reigns. And from there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. God preserved his king and placed him on his throne. And one day soon, we will reign with him. We have considered Jehoash's bright beginning. And now we turn to Jehoash's mixed middle. That's the title of the second book. It's kind of a boring outline this morning, I'm sorry. Jehoash's mixed middle. This is what we're looking at in 2 Kings chapter 12, verses 1 to 16. But first, let's just read the first three verses of chapter 12. In the seventh year of Jehu, Jehoash began to reign. And he reigned 40 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebiah of Beersheba, And Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, because Jehoiada, the priest, instructed him. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. The first three verses you see here, they they actually offered the the kind of standard language for introducing a king to us in in the book of Kings. Ordinarily, the, the language that we have in verse 1 would have come at the very beginning of Jehoash's reign, but his reign, it, it kind of had an unusual beginning, didn't it? Uh, there was a usurper on the throne. Athaliah sought to wrest the throne from the house of David with her bloodthirsty rage, and the, and the author has, has wanted to underscore God's commitment to his promises. So so he, he took the time in chronicling how Jehoash came to the throne, and only now he gives his kind of standard introductory language. And this tells us that Athaliah truly was a traitor and that Jehoash was the rightful ruler. God has triumphed over evil. And this standard introductory formula, formula should be read as, as actually something of an exclamation point on the previous chapter. And if my memory serves me correctly, Jehoash is one of only eight kings in the entire book of Kings who receives a positive evaluation we're told there in verse 2, do you see that That Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days. This is the, the language that the author of Kings uses when he wants to give a positive evaluation of a king. And what this means, that, that Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days, is that Jehoash himself, Jehoash himself remained faithful to the covenant. He did not go after and worship other gods. He, he kept himself from idols. He only worshipped Yahweh. That's the the positive evaluation. But then we're given that that concerning qualification, aren't we? Did you notice how verse 2 ends? Jehoash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all his days because Jehoiada the priest instructed him. On the one hand, uh, Jehoiada ought to be praised for instructing Jehoash in the ways of the Lord. He ought to be upheld and honored as a, a father figure, who raised Jehoash in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. On the other hand, this is an ominous qualification, especially given verse 3. Right Here's verse 3. Nevertheless, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. The the qualification that Jehoash did what was right because Jehoiah the priest instructed him has placed kind of an asterisk next to his name and his faith, because it raises the question of whether or not Jehoash's worship of Yahweh was personal or pragmatic. Did Jehoash internalize the religion Jehoiada taught him? Did he claim Yahweh, God, as his own? Or was he keeping the law merely as a habit formed in his youth, This was the religion he was taught. So so this was the religion he practiced. But was it personal? Was he loved by God? And did he love God? Did he love the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength? Children, youth, young adults. This is an especially relevant question for you. Your parents have been instructing you, teaching you about Jesus. They've been introducing you to Jesus. But let me just ask you this. Is Jesus your own? Is Jesus your own? Have you you embraced Jesus in faith? Have Have you laid hold of Jesus by faith? Or has faith in Jesus been laid on you? Have you wrapped yourself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he's your only hope in life and in death? Or are you, is Jesus still someone you're trying to wrap your mind around? Now you need to know that it's okay to have questions about Jesus. You don't have to have everything about Jesus figured out. Your parents don't have everything about Jesus figured out. I don't have everything about Jesus figured out. And if I may plead with you to do one thing, please do one thing. Please be honest. Be honest about where you are with Jesus. Don't don't pretend. Don't pretend to be a Christian. Be honest about your doubts. Be honest about your questions. I know that you want to please your parents, and that's a good thing in many ways. Jehoash no doubt wanted to please Jehoiada. You, you, you probably want to please your, your peers. You want your parents and others to think well of you inside and outside the church. But pretending won't help you wrestle with the truth claims of the Bible. Pretending actually keeps the truth out of reach. Honest, humble, and investigation digging in brings the claims of the truth within reach an open investigation of the truth of the bible of Jesus is what you need most and parents I want to ask a couple of things of you welcome the honesty of your children be the kind of mom and dad that that they that your kids will instinctively think think I can tell mom and dad that I've got questions about this I can tell mom and dad that I've got uncertainties about this. I, I can tell them this because I know they're not going to be disappointed in me. I know they love me and want to hear my questions. And, and you can become that parent in part by saying thank you when your children express their doubts and fears. Say thank you, son, for, for telling me what's bothering you. Thank you for being honest with me about your, your doubts and fears. Thank you for telling me about your struggles and temptations i want you to know that you can always tell me these things you don't need to be embarrassed or be afraid there is nothing that you can do or say that will shake my love for you thank you for telling me moms and dads thank your children for being honest with you and one more thing parents and now i'm speaking to actually everyone because i think that you can be spiritual fathers and mothers whether or not you've got physical children so parents, spiritual parents, one more thing. Don't rush it. Be patient. There's, um, there's something that we are prone to forget when it comes to Jesus' commands in Matthew 28. Remember in Matthew 28, Jesus, uh, 28 verses 19 and 20, Jesus said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, making a convert, it happens in an instant. But making a disciple takes time. Making a follower of Jesus takes time. Whether it's with young people or with mature adults, it takes time to make a faithful follower of Jesus. That's what a a disciple is. They must be made into those who can bear the responsibilities of discipleship, which means uh, being made to bear the responsibilities of membership in the local church. On this matter, I found um, the experience of missionaries in a Muslim country instructive. Uh, Many of you know that my parents served uh, as missionaries in a Muslim country for some time. Uh, When they arrived in in their city to, uh, to partner with the local evangelical church, there was only one in a city of more than 8 million people and had less than 50 believers. This local church, they discovered that the local church would often wait. They would delay a convert's baptism. In the main, they would wait and see if the new convert from Islam gave a credible profession of faith. And to that end, they diligently taught them so thoroughly that they were able to explain the Trinity. And that makes sense, especially since Jesus commanded that they be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. It makes sense that they should be able to explain that there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three are actually one God. Same in essence and equal in power and glory. It makes sense that they should be able to explain the name that they're being baptized in. And not only did they seek to teach new converts how to understand and explain the Trinity, but this local church wanted to make sure that new converts were ready to die for their faith. This is especially important inside a Muslim country. This local church would have their potential new converts share the news of their conversion with their family and friends. In other words, they had to tell those who had the authority under Islamic law to kill them for their conversion. Not only did they have to tell their family and friends, but they had to invite them to their baptism. This local church wanted to make sure the disciples they were making were theologically trained and ready to die for Jesus, In other words, they wanted to make sure that they were truly disciples who had internalized the Christian faith and truly believed that to live is Christ and to die is gain. Philippians 1.21. This is instructive. And we could hazard to guess that the instinctual reply of perhaps many evangelicals to this scenario is that this approach expects too much of a person. Maybe... Or or maybe the Western Evangelical Church has expected too little. Is it too much to ask a person to understand the name they're being baptized into? Is it too much to ask a person to be ready to give their life for Jesus when He has given His life for them? Probably not. We probably need to work harder at making disciples and not just converts. So brothers or sisters, whether you're teaching your children or your co-workers about Jesus be patient it takes time to make a disciple and most of all pray that the good seed of God's Word would take root in their hearts oh that the words of Jehoiada would have been planted deep in the heart of Jehoash what a shame it is that his faith was so superficial you see the law of God authorized Jehoash to root out And remove unauthorized worship in his kingdom but he didn't do it in verse 3 the author is telling us that he let the people of his kingdom continue in secretism and paganism he let the people of his kingdom continue to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places unauthorized places of worship worship was authorized in jerusalem at the temple If he were concerned for the glory of God and the good of his people, he would have torn down the high places and pled with his people to be faithful to the covenant that they made in verse 17 of chapter 11, just shortly ago. In a parallel passage in 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verses 17 to 22, we learn that after Jehoiada the priest died, Jehoash He listens to the rulers of Judah, and they abandoned the house of the Lord. That's the temple. They abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. In other words, Jehoash descended into idolatry after Jehoiada died. His faith wasn't real. It was fickle. He wasn't faithful. He was faithless. His faith wasn't personal. It was pragmatic. Now, the author of Kings, he doesn't bring that out in full force in our text. Instead, he points out that while Jehoiada was living, Jehoash made progress on rebuilding and repairing the temple. That's what's covered in verses 4 to 16 of chapter 12. Jehoash knows that the temple is in desperate need of repair. That's the case with any building that ages. Solomon's temple was finished, and it was glorious, but any building that stands for any length of time in this fallen world needs to be repaired and renewed in order to prolong its useful life. That's why we set aside a significant uh, amount of funds each year in our budget for the maintenance and upkeep of our building. And by God's grace, this congregation has been faithful to give. And we've been able to make significant uh, headway in renewing the building in the last five years. Brothers and sisters, you ought to be commended for your generosity, which I believe stems from genuine faith and faithfulness to God. In verse 6, you see there at chapter 12, verse 6, we learn that in the 23rd year of his reign, Joash begins work on repairing the temple. Now, there's enough blame to go around for both Jehoash and the priests in allowing the temple to fall into disrepair. For one, it shouldn't have taken Jehoash 23 years to get the work on the temple started. And the priests shouldn't have let Yahweh's house... Um, languish as it had. The bottom line that we're seeing here is that no one in the leadership of Israel is really giving Yahweh's house the attention it deserves. Still, we must give Jehoash some credit for in the 23rd year it was rain, he finally he devises a system, he raises funds to repair the temple. And what we find is the work kind of moves along swimmingly. Once it gets going, not only did the people give generously and faithfully, but there were honest workmen who labored for the restoration of the temple. And this is presented as an accomplishment for Jehoash. The temple was something of the glory of Jerusalem. So any king worth his salt ought to see to its upkeep. The question is, did Jehoash see to its upkeep because he thought Yahweh ought to have a house, that God ought to have a house that was fit for the sovereign of the universe? Or, did he see to the repairs of the temple because a shabby temple would have reflected poorly upon him and his reign? Sadly, that this is even a legitimate question is concerning. Beloved, just a moment ago, I commended you for your faithful giving, giving to the work of the gospel and the stewardship of God's resources as given to us as a church. Notice that the people of Judah gave generously. But remember the sad words of verse 3. Right, the high places were not taken away. The people continued to sacrifice and make offerings on the high places. We can give to the work of God's kingdom. Right? Like the Pharisees and the rich who brought all that money to the temple. We can give to the work of God's kingdom without our hearts being tied to the one true God. In other words, we can give to God with our hands without giving God our hearts. You might have thought that I was just asking the children of our church those questions. Is Jesus your own? Have you laid hold of Jesus by faith? Have you wrapped yourself in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because he's your only hope in life and in death? You might have thought that I was just asking the children of our church the questions, those questions. But these are questions, honestly, that we all need to ponder. The elders' greatest concern, the pastors of the church's greatest concern, is not the size of our church's membership directory or the size of our church's budget, the size of our hearts toward God we want you to hunger after God's word we want you to hunger and thirst after righteousness because you are so delighted by our God who is most loving most gracious most merciful most long suffering most abundant in goodness and truth and forgiving iniquity transgression and sin we pray that you are so amazed that he is so kind to be the rewarder of those who diligently seek him and that that's you that he loves you how do we know if we have set apart christ as lord in our hearts often but not always a crisis will disclose the nature of the faith found in our hearts as jehoash's life marches toward the end a crisis marches toward him so let's turn and consider our third and final point, Jehoash's embarrassing end. We've seen his bright beginning, his mixed middle, and now we see his embarrassing end. Let's begin by reading just verses 17 and 18 of chapter 12. At that time, Haziel, king of Syria, went up and fought against Gath and took it. But when Haziel set his face to go up against Jerusalem, Jehoash, king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord and of the king's house and sent these to Haziel, king of Syria. Then Haziel went away from Jerusalem. At one level, the author of Kings is just giving us this kind of factual report of what happened, right? Haziel threatened Jerusalem, Jehoash, he treated him to the treasuries of the kingdom, and Haziel went away happy. That's true. That's a fact. But this is not just history. This is theological history. And this text is actually textured with lament, with sorrow and sadness. The author is lamenting Jehoash's lack of faith, his lack of trust in God. You see, the author didn't have to say, you see, the author didn't have to say that Jehoash... Um, gave Haziel the the kingdom's treasuries. No, instead of using like two words, like kingdom treasury, hey, Jehoash gave him the kingdom treasury. He uses 57 words in English, 57 words to explain that he handed over the treasuries of the kingdom. I mean, listen to those 57 words. Jehoash, the king of Judah, took all the sacred gifts that Jehoshaphat and Jehoram and Ahaziah, his fathers, the kings of Judah, had dedicated, and his own sacred gifts, and all the gold that was found in the treasuries of the house of the Lord, and the king's house, and sent these to Haziel, king of Syria. You, You don't need that many words. You don't need that many words to say that he gave away the treasuries of the kingdom. You don't need that many words unless what you are trying to do is painfully communicate in the eyes and the ears of your hearers and readers this wretched thing that has happened. What's going on here? Jehoash is trusting in money and not in the Maker. When he is confronted with a crisis, his faith, or perhaps we could say lack thereof, is revealed. Where do you go when a crisis comes to you? Where do you go for refuge and relief in a crisis when it reveals something of your faith. Christian, before a crisis comes, pray that you will be found faithful. I'm so encouraged by how our brother and sister, Ryan and Casey, our faithfulness trial. As I sat and talked with them, they were telling me about things they had heard in sermons from, from Michael's sermon a couple weeks ago. What they were holding on to the truth. They are praying, Lord, we don't know why you're doing this, but we want you to be glorified in it. Praise God for their faithfulness and their faith in Jesus Christ. Pray that you'll be found faithful when a trial comes to you. Pray that God would be your refuge and strength. If your life is free from trouble, because we go through these, these hills and valleys, don't we? Sometimes we're not facing a particular crisis. And if that's your moment, praise God and put your nose in his word and set yourself to leaning on his goodness and grace and learning of his goodness and grace pray that god would be your refuge and strength that he would be your ever-present help when trouble comes pray that he would hold on to you and that you would hold on to him if you want to end well then begin and continue as you mean to end clinging as tightly to jesus christ as you can the problem it goes even deeper for jehoash instead of crying out to god for deliverance instead of repenting of his idolatry and syncretism instead of confessing their faithlessness and helplessness and pleading with god to be merciful to intervene jehoash he hands over the treasures of the kingdom he did what Rehoboam and Asa did. And after him, Ahaziah and Hezekiah will do it too. <laughs> those first reading this book, which they were living in exile, those who first received this book, they would have thought, this is what the Babylonians did to us. They, they took our treasures. They took our land. They took our homes. They took our kingdom. This is awful. This is embarrassing. Jehoash was faith, faithless. And so were we. You see, Athaliah, she was downright evil. But Jehoash is just lukewarm in his devotion. Are you just lukewarm toward God? The young promising king has been emptied of all of his promise. I mean, consider consider how his reign ends. Take a look there at verse 19. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoash and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Judah? his servants arose and made a conspiracy and struck down Joash in the house of Milo on the way that goes down to Selah. It was Jehozakar, the son of Shimeath, and Jehozabad, the son of Shomer, his servants, who struck him down so that he died. And they buried him with his fathers in the city of David, and Amaziah's son reigned in his place. Jehoash, or the shortened name Joash here, is cut down through a conspiracy. This is as surprising as it is shocking. This kind of thing doesn't normally happen in the southern kingdom. I mean, it happens a lot in the northern kingdom. But this kind of activity in the south is barbaric. The only southern king to meet a gruesome end like this was Ahaziah. And he died in large part due to his evil. One wonders if the writer of Kings is kind of quietly implying something about Jehoash. Perhaps he's a little bit like Ahaziah. Not only is it surprising and shocking, but it's downright embarrassing. Right? As king, he must not have had that much influence in the kingdom. The fact that his servants could so easily betray him after he reigned for 40 years. Right? You're supposed to kind of build up credibility as a ruler as you reign on. But after 40 years... reveals he must not have been a king who was well-loved he certainly did not finish well and even though Jehoash meets an embarrassing end there's still hope did you catch the hope found in verse 21 did you see it it's there at the end the hope is found in the words Amaziah his son reigned in his place Do do you see the hope there you know what's going on there As it turns out, this embarrassing end is not an end at all. The line of David continues. The hope of the Messiah continues. The hope of the one who will not disappoint like nearly every earthly ruler we've ever encountered in this world. That hope, Jehoashi's been a serious disappointment, but the hope that there will finally be a king who will not disappoint continues. The hope of the one who in his greatest moment of crisis, would turn to God the Father, continues. Indeed, the king that Jehoash failed to be has come in Jesus Christ. In his greatest moment of crisis, we learn this about Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As the world conspired against Jesus to put Him to death, He entrusted Himself to God the Father. This is why He is our hope and peace and righteousness. Friend, if you're here this morning, and you're not a believer or follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, then I want you to come to Jesus in repentance and faith. Jesus is the King that God promised He is the king that God promised in Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 and 2 Samuel chapter 7 verse 14. But he's not merely the king that God the Father promised. He is also the king that you need. You need him. Do you know why? Deep down you do. Deep down you know that you have sinned against the holy and eternal God. Deep down you know that you've trusted in man's strength, in money and material things. You've, You've trusted in everything but your maker. Deep down you know that you have decided to live your own way rather than God's way. You've done only what we have all done. We've all sinned against God. And the Bible tells us what we know to be true. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible also tells us that the wages of sin is death. For our working in sin, we deserve to get paid the punishment of death. But the good news of the Bible is that the King, that the book of Kings has been anticipating, has come. Jesus Christ has come and He is not disappointed. He has lived the life that we have not lived. He has lived the life of perfect righteousness unto God the Father. He has died the death that we deserve to die for our sins. And He has been raised from the grave in victory over sin and death. Listen to this good news from 1 Peter 2, verse 24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And this is 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the Spirit. Friends, do you hear that? Jesus died to bring you to God. That, is good news because you've been so far off from Him. But Jesus has come to bring you to God and He's done it by His life and death and resurrection. He lived and died and rose again so that you might be saved and might be brought to God and to enjoy Him for all eternity. So come to Jesus in repentance and faith today. Turn from your sins and follow after Jesus. And if you want to be made a disciple of Jesus, Talk with a Christian friend or family member that you came here with this morning. Come find me at the door. We'll be patient. We'll love you and teach you and walk with you. And you'll probably teach us some things along the way too. Christian, this call to repent and believe is just as important for you to hear and heed as it was on the first day you first professed faith in Jesus Christ. I say that because Jehoash had a promising start. He had a bright beginning, but he had an embarrassing end. He began well, but he did not finish well. Be careful not to look down on Jehoash, but be warned by him. Learn from him. You can be close to God, and yet so far away. Joash he he grew up in the temple. He grew up around the, the worship of God. He was taught by a priest. That upbringing didn't ensure that he would persevere, let alone believe. So how can you ensure that you end and finish the race of this life well? How can you end your life like Polycarp saying, the Lord Jesus has been my master and he has done me no wrong. I can't leave him. How can you end well? Repentance and faith is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. Each and every day, turn from sin and cling to Jesus. And remember God's faithfulness from beginning to end in the story of Jehoash. Right? Chapter 11, it opened with God providentially protecting the line of David. And he kept his promises alive by his power. But not only that, through a tumultuous reign and an embarrassing end, he still seated a son of David on the throne. Our God is faithful and he is committed to his promises. He's also committed to his people. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. He remains faithful, and so He is our hope. Let's pray together.